You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Good morning. Good morning, Hill City. Really good to be with you. I got to tell you, the AC is feeling good in here. Wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Should I say, welcome to Chill City? What do you think? Where JC and AC come together, I mean, <laughs> good motto, huh? Uh, my name is Derek, and I serve at Boise Bible College, uh, just down by the fairgrounds, and whether you know this or not, Hill City has been a strong supporting church uh, of our college as we equip servant leaders for the church, uh, for, to lead the bride of Jesus. And uh, we're starting classes like BSU, we're right around the corner, public schools are all kind of starting, so hey, as, as the Spirit uh, nudges you to pray about school starts, uh, we would value your prayers as well as students arrive and, and registration happens and, and we get going. Uh, just want to say thank you, and I'm really grateful to be a part of this study through First Timothy. We're going to continue in that section where Josh left off last week, where Apostle Paul is kind of giving some, some coaching tips to his apprentice, you know, a protege coaching his apprentice on how to lead and live on mission in his city. Let me set that up this way, okay, kind of illustratively. Uh, a few years ago, I noticed that I was having trouble uh, watching where my golf ball landed off the tee. Uh, I thought, who am I hitting it that far? I mean, I just couldn't see where it stopped. And my eye doctor humbled me and said, it's just nearsightedness, bro. Just settle down. So he, uh, he got me prescribed a couple of, uh, a pair of glasses, some driving glasses, not just for my Honda, but also for, you know, my Tideless. And so everything is clearer now. I'm seeing all the signs now as I drive down the road and I can find my golf ball in the fairway. I think there's some element in that illustration that might be helpful for us in this idea of a lens adjustment, you know, uh, to kind of correct our eternal nearsightedness. I mean, it's just really hard, isn't it, today with stuff that are going on this week, whatever is on your mind for this month, it's hard to think about the intangible idea of heaven or eternal life. It's just really hard. It's, it's very challenging, uh, and we get easily tempted with the stuff of today, and what happens is eternity gets eclipsed by stuff of earth. And it's just part of what we have to work through. And that's what I think what Apostle Paul is trying to get at as he wraps up this last section. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, if you want to open your Bibles, where he, to pick up where Josh left off last week, the stuff of earth is kind of eclipsing the eternal perspective. And Paul wants to make sure that Timothy doesn't let that happen, where the stuff of money and comfort ensnaring us to live only for what's right in front of our grill with no eternity in mind. And the subtle feeding of this addiction to have more stuff and more comfort because of this disease called affluenza that we all struggle with. Paul was warning Timothy, lest you get disillusioned with the stuff of earth and your purpose. Timothy, some have wandered from the faith because of the stuff of earth, because of the love of money and all of its trappings. And so Paul adds this in 1 Timothy 6 verse 11. But as for you, O man of God... Flee these things. We know how to run, don't we? Paul's tone here is kind of emergency. Uh, in contrast to those who have wandered from the faith. Timothy, constant consumerism is going to kill your soul. It's a cancer to who you are in your eternal perspective. Bear this in mind. He says, flee from it. 
And we know how to do that. And when danger comes at us, whether it's gunfire, tsunami, or bees, we know when danger is near us. We know how to run. We do that really well. There's no particular secret. There's no formula to recite. There's no technique to learn. Run! And that's what Paul is kind of saying to Timothy. And we know how to do this. I was walking through an airport uh, this summer, and I I noticed an advertisement slogan that caught my eye, and it simply said this, can we really live, dot, 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 with less? We're we're inundated with this need, need for more and and the stuff to have better. And I I don't think being minimalist is just trendy. I think it's good for our soul. It's really helpful for us as men and women of God trying to pursue the heart of God and trying to live. Paul says to us, flee the vices of stuff and be content living with less, O man of God. That's what he's kind of saying to Timothy. And Paul's appeal to Timothy is really kind of tapping into his inner confidence into this honorable title, man of God. It's got Old Testament roots to it if you explore that. We're talking a phrase, reserved limited just to God's spokesman in the Old Testament. It's, it's listed multiple times with multiple names like Moses and Samuel, David, Elisha, Elijah, Timothy. You are an empowered emissary reserved as a spokesman for God, deputized with Christ's authority by his spirit within you to lead out and to live with mission like the men of old. Man of God, flee from the love of money. But that Old Testament phrase, man of God, it's actually used two times in the New Testament, right here in 1 Timothy 6. And also in that really famous passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, talking about Scripture, Paul writes this, all Scripture is breathed out by God, therefore it's trustworthy, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, it's profitable for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And if you look at the context of, of chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3 into chapter 4, I think it's not just limited to Timothy, but men and women being thoroughly equipped with God's word for God's work. So he's charging us today, Christians who have a desire to live a godly life. Y'all are messengers. Y'all are spokesmen of his scriptural standard. And so to drive that deep into Timothy, Paul develops a fourfold appeal in these verses of 1 Timothy 6 to kind of lead on mission. Fourfold, sort of a a fourfold lens adjusting, uh, spiritual eye opening nearsighted correcting appeal. Four points that will insert confidence and courage in his protege as well as within us to live, to live out God's eternal orientation into how it orients around our life to live on mission for him. So when living on mission, appeal number one, Paul says pursue a holy ethic. One, as one's being thoroughly equipped with God's word for God's work, flee the trappings of stuff and pursue Flee this to pursue righteousness and godliness, faith and love, steadfastness and gentleness. Paul tells Timothy, turn your affections from the youthful passions and from greed and everything else kind of incompatible with the wholesome will of God and pursue real life, grasping for oxygen. Like when you come out of the lake, you've been holding your water beneath the surface and you, you want oxygen in your lungs. Pursue that, Paul says to Timothy. Escape the vices 
of this material, comfortable world and pursue the virtues of God's character. He just lists six right here. Let's pair them up to address it. Pursue righteousness and godliness. Perhaps righteousness here, it's a big word. Maybe righteousness in this context of this chapter could, could speak about uh, the reflection of God's generosity with stuff. And you couple that with godliness, it, it, it reflects God's image, the one that we worship. Pursue faith and love. Faith and love. It, it, coupling together, it might be this idea of faithful integrity with outrageously selfless love. And together, faith and love, they kind of counterbalance this material accumulation that we're so tempted with today. And pursue endurance and gentleness. Both endurance or steadfastness and gentleness, when you put those together, they're needed in difficult circumstances because most difficult circumstances involve people to whom we need to extend steadfastness and gentleness. Here's the, here's the truth. Once we see God's goodness for the good that it is, we will crave it. We'll long for it. We will reach for it and desire it. We will pursue it. That's why a holy ethic isn't about rules to be kept, but a person to be engaged with, Jesus. You know that old hymn? Have you sung it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And when you do, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and his grace. What a great lyric. When living on mission, pursuing a holy ethic is actually oriented around the person and it's rooted in the person of Jesus, which leads to the second appeal. Contend for... Jesus' sound teaching. In this famous verse in chapter 6, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Our responsibility with Jesus' teachings involve running as well as standing. Flight as well as fight, if I can say it that way. Like an athlete or like a warrior with a formidable foe. Contend, Paul says, for the faith. It's used seven times in First Timothy. The faith. That definite article, not to talk about grammar too much here, but that definite article is really important. The faith, it intensifies the worth of this truth. It's vital that we defend the faith. It, it, it doesn't mean to pick a fight. It doesn't mean to be a bully. It just means to be a bulldog. Determined to contend for the sound teachings of Jesus. And that word, the faith, if you, if you take 1 Timothy and you couple it with 2 Timothy and you throw Titus into the mix, the faith is actually used three different ways in Paul's letters. The faith could be equivalent to the truth. Paul talks about the teaching, and he talks about the deposit. Those are three synonymous ideas to this idea of the faith. And Paul says to Timothy, hey, Tim, since some have wandered and meandered away from it, it's all the more important that you should fight and contend for the faith, for the sound teachings of Jesus in the Bible. So let's trace the sequence for a minute. Uh, what began in the Old Testament with people who spoke for God? It reached a crescendo when the Word of God put flesh on in Jesus, and then he deputized some apostles who actually taught his principal teachings, and now today we are echoes of that principal teaching from Jesus. We are amplifiers, living amplifiers of this biblical message that lives and resides within us. And in a world of half-truths, or we distrust what's really true, this, this appeal requires that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
Because if we don't, that thought will take us captive. Besides, if you don't contend for Jesus in this city, then who will? Uh, What is God's scriptural truth on any moral issue under the sun, any, any social issue under the sun? What is God's word on the definition of male and female or marriage? What's God have to say about the role of government? What's God's word with regards to what social justice really ought to be in the biblical paradigm? What about the list can go on? What about birth control or media or about alcohol? What is it? In a day where the chalk lines of our soccer fields are kind of getting blurred, and we're not quite sure what is in and what is out, Jesus' accurate teachings are needed more than ever because it's true. Think of it this way. I like to golf, as you already picked up on. Some things, some, sometimes good, close enough is good enough. You know what I mean? Like when you golf with some buddies and you kind of chip the ball a foot from the hole and your buddy says, hey, you know what? I know you can make that putt. Just pick it up. I'll give it to you. Let's count it. Sometimes close enough is good enough. Sometimes close enough is not good enough. Like if you play in a golf tournament, you better make that one-foot putt. I've seen many one-footers missed. Uh, let's, let's go a little further. Uh, sometimes in the medical world, um, close enough isn't good enough. Can you imagine the malpractice suits there would be if close enough was good enough? <laughs> uh, if you fly a lot, I certainly want my pilot to be more than just good enough. And when it comes to forensic investigators, those things demand precision. Some things you just got to be 100% accurate on, and one of those is the word of God, the teachings of Jesus. Paul says anyone on mission for Jesus correctly handles the word of his truth, 2 Timothy chapter 2. So the man and the woman equipped with scriptural accuracy can contend for Jesus' teachings in a world that may not be comfortable with that. I really appreciate the insight of John Stott. He was a preaching minister and scholar from Europe. He said this, Defending truth is not about waging war. It's a good fight, and it has to be fought. God's truth is precious and even sacred, essential for the health of the church. And thankfully, Jesus, even today, still enables us to see truth for what it actually is. Uh, Consider the brilliant image that C.S. Lewis offers in his three-volume series, The Space Trilogy. Maybe you've read some things from C.S. Lewis in his three-volume Space Trilogy. The hero of the three volumes, his name is Elwyn Ransom. (laughs) He's a university prof who accidentally finds himself on a spaceship headed to Mars. And there on that planet, he encounters the expansive infection of evil throughout the whole universe. And also on Mars, he he encounters spirit beings who serve the creator of the universe who've been assigned to keep the residents of Mars free from falling into sin. After the prophet explores Mars, volume one, and Venus, volume two, in Lewis's fictional world, uh, Ransom, the prophet, he finds himself on another planet confronting the darkness and wretchedness of planet Earth, volume three. One evening... Spirit beings from deep heaven appear in dazzling brightness in the prof's living quarters. They're like shining pillars of light, powerful and dangerous. They're exactly vertical columns. They're pure rods with no bend in them whatsoever. 
They're kind of foreign to earth, and yet the prophet's kind of magnetized and drawn to them. And since earth is under the influence of what Lewis calls the bent one, that's a subscription of the devil, the bent one who brings coldness and colorless decay and sorrow through sin and death on planet earth, these spirit beings in the prophet's living quarters uh, are from the great creator who is unbent, who is holy. These vibrant shafts from heaven's sinless plane of reality above the earth, uh, they, they are pure in every way. It's like they're so vertically true that they're not plumbed to the rest of the earth. Those ambassadors are connected to what Lewis describes as true vertical. The entire earth is a little off plumb. For the first time, the prophet sees that submitting to what is truth reveals the entire world is actually sort of irregular. And from that point on, the prophet knows that he's walking to this earth and, and it's, kinda, it's not quite level because he's met the standard of truth of what true vertical really is. And that both kind of unsettles him as well as assures him in a matchless way. Paul is kind of saying to us these words from 1 Timothy 3 a few weeks ago. I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Communities of Jesus, like this church, are guardians of Jesus' teachings, not just for Boise, but for the nations around the world, especially those that don't even have the Bible translated yet. This church is playing a role in that. Jesus' teachings form the church like pillars and supports of truth for all the languages and tribes around the planet one day. And our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to contend for the faith of Jesus in order to restore people of every nation back to Christ for his mission. At Boise Bible College, where we are, students are, are, are being pressed to be equipped to contend for biblical truth. And I love what's going on in the culture of this church, leadership down. This church is actually equipping you to be biblically aware. I love that. And just don't, just don't be surprised. You know, the world doesn't want to submit to the ways of Jesus' thinking or the, the way of Jesus' behavior. For example, become last in order to be first? Not in your life. Turn the other cheek? Yeah, think twice about that one. So we've been given the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to be a pillar and a support for the truth as we contend for Jesus' mission. So when living on mission, Appeal 3, Paul encourages us to ex experience God's eternal reality. He says in verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Grasp firmly and experience fully the eternal life today. See, life on earth with Christ is a present experience of what Jacob's talking about, this future hope, this anticipation. Because our life is tethered so tightly to the person of Jesus, eternal life is a now and a not yet reality. We do experience eternal life to some degree in part right here, right now, but in one day, fully, when Christ reappears. We don't want to think the eternal life... It's is only just a heaven reality. It's a Jesus reality. 
And so therefore, if you're in Jesus and he's within you by his spirit, the beginnings of eternal life are actually welling up within you now, Paul says to Timothy, take hold of that. And here's why I think it's so vital to experience it today, rather than just think, well, I'll just get eternal life one day when I go to heaven. Here's why it's so important. Jesus' eternal life taking root in us corrects our spiritually bent spines according to this world, correcting us back, correcting us from the strong lure of money and stuff and materialism, which distracts us and eclipses eternity in our day. So take hold of it tightly. Paul describes real life as something now you have, to which he says, you were called when you made that good confession, when you were called Passively, the verb is used, when you were called. God called you into salvation and you accepted that salvation. And when you accepted that salvation in, in Jesus, you entered into a bit of a covenant obligation where you actually, you are a willing participant in it. Take hold, Paul says, of that eternal life, that gift now until Jesus reappears and is fully experienced. Sitting right here right now, can you go back in your memory banks to when you were called? Do you remember that conversion moment when you're baptized? Do you remember that? When you confessed in front of many witnesses, I do to Jesus. When you made that vow to him, that vow is still ringing in the halls of eternity today. It still matters today. And that's important today because it's been a pretty rough season the last three or five years, hasn't it? COVID, national unrest, divisive topics. Many have grown in despair and many have quit on their faith and loneliness is a real deal. And actually in surveys I've seen, many church leaders, many Joshes and Jakes and Andrews have, have, have abandoned their posts at their church because it's been awfully hard due to the unsustainable stress. All of us, whatever our vocation is, have had a gut check moment and we'll have gut check moments whether we're going to throw the towel in or not. We will have moments where we're going to choose to remain faithful or not to him. And Paul says to us, take hold of eternal life. Grasp it with force. It will sustain you. And although we've already received that deposit, a good deposit of eternal life, make it your own. Live it full, without despair. And know this to be true, that when you take hold of that eternal life today, trust that he's holding tightly on to you today. So Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 6, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, the one who gives life, to all things, and of Christ Jesus, the one in who, in who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you, keep the command. Keep it unstained and free from reproach until, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Until Christ's reappearing, do this. Flee from the stuff and pursue fellowship in the character of God. Until Christ reappearing, do this. Contend for the faith and seize eternal life now. And you do those verbs, those strong action verbs, it'll aid you to live unstained in this world, free from reproach. I'll never forget when I was in Bible college, my prof talked about living above reproach. He said it's not about living perfect lives. It just means you're living life 
with few handles on it. He wasn't talking about love handles, but handles that somebody can grab that might talk about moral compromise in your face. What about this choice you made? Live as, with as few handles as possible where your, your public social self and your personal private self are integrated in Jesus and you begin to imitate him with integrity. How long are we to live that way? Until. Until God's promised relief appears his glorious intervention to rescue his people from sin and death and the effects of that forever. Jesus' testimony is to be imitated and his appearing is to be anticipated like a bride. I saw a bride walking down an aisle yesterday. It was a gorgeous wedding to her groom. May we be a church that's like that, ready and eager and faithfully devoted for him alone. And you know the early Christians where Paul was, was writing, they lived as if Christ's return would occur in their lifetime. Do you know that? They lived so boldly. Paul, Paul expected to see Jesus reappear with all authority in his lifetime. He actually expected to see every wrong made right before he died. He lived that way. We, for the most part, I don't think we expect Jesus to appear very soon. That'll interrupt our plans. And because of that, we're a little weaker for it. The confident hope of his consummation and our, our completion in Jesus, that confident hope can sustain us when days are long and when bodies grow weary and the results we're aiming at seem to be few. Timothy, live a life on mission without fault until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That event is certain, though the timing of that, the appearing of it may be uncertain. We're not quite sure. But the moment is all in God's hands. He'll, he'll unleash that moment in his perfect good timing. Paul's assurance is, obey the charge, Timothy, until. Lean in until Jesus appears. And you know when you're young and healthy, thinking on any given day about something so intangible as heaven it can be challenging. You know, I mean, temporary world that we live in seduces us to carpe diem, seize the day, right? And it's hard to think about anything further. But when, when decades get added to your life and, and a few dents happen on your life with trauma or cancers or various things, looking to heaven's unveiling of Christ's day and that complete eternal life becomes something we are hungry for. And you get... You grow in your appetite for eager. Paul could hardly wait. The term until is key. It's really important for our faithful living while we're on earth in his mission. Until. It's a small word, but it serves as the foundation for every destination point in our lives. Until. It starts with our little kids. How long until we get there? It goes on into high school. Man, I can't wait until we graduation. And it it oozes into adulthood where until can have both a negative and a positive nuance to it, to that destination point, whether that's appointments you have this week or next month with a client or with a doctor, uh, until it's a destination point for a vacation or an anniversary trip you're looking forward to, or a wedding or a honeymoon or that strategy meeting or that job review or the NFL to start, that until moment with a reunion with family, or there's an until element with surgery, 
or this week, the dreaded first day of school. I'll tell you what, whatever's on your calendar influences this very moment. Whatever until moment you have on your calendar, it, it creates anxiety or anticipation. That until moment, it, it creates calm or fret, joy, elation, stress. It doesn't matter. Whatever until moment is coming at you, it impacts your thinking and living today. But the waiting church looks eager for her bridegroom. It affects the way we live and behave and the manner to which we, the manner to which we lean into our future hope in Jesus. It dictates the measure to which we live on mission in this world today. It doesn't mean there won't be struggles, but when we see him, it'll be worth it all. Maybe you've heard the story about William Dyke. It's a tremendously good story. He could hardly wait to get married. He was yearning for the day. What's noteworthy about William Dyke is that he became blind when he was 10. A decade or so later, in his 20s, he was in graduate school in England, and he met this girl, the daughter of a British admiral, and he fell in love with her and decided to marry but before he gave his daughter's hand in marriage, the British admiral uh, insisted that William would submit to what was at that time a pretty risky surgery to restore his sight. Well, William agreed because he was in love, but he had his own condition. He didn't want the gauze removed from his eyes until the moment he met his bride at the altar. He wanted her face to be the first he would behold on the wedding day. Surgery takes place, the wedding date is set. William's father led his son down the aisle, the front of the aisle. The bride's father led her down the aisle. And as she came, William's father stood behind his son, unwrapping and winding the gauze from his eyes. And no one there knew if the surgery worked or was successful, not even William. And when William's bride stood before him, that last strand of gauze was pulled away and he was face to face with his bride and he stood there speechless and everyone waited breathless and he said, you are more beautiful than I imagined. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 13. One day it'll all happen to us, but the roles will be reversed. Paul says, now I see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then I will see him face to face. Now I know him in part. Then I shall know him fully as I am fully known. One day, the bride of Jesus, nearly blind now and bent by the stuff of earth, will stand unbent and fully visible in front of the bridegroom at that wedding feast and the veil will be removed, and the scales will fall off, Paul says, and we will stand there and see him face to face, and he will be more than we ever imagined. <laughs> I'm so eager for that day. How about you? Yes. Here's the point. The way we view that day with Christ impacts the way I view this day for Christ. The way I view that day with Jesus impacts the way I live this day for Jesus. Our eager love for him is our obedience to him, and that dictates how we live for him on mission. So here's the big idea to this message. Let me take those three points and kind of smash them together, and I add a fourth, okay? Here's sort of the big idea. Our pure lifestyle, which is rooted in the person of Jesus, according to his anticipated presence, 
is all based on God's unparalleled authority. Let me use the phrases I've been using in the message so far. Our holy ethic is rooted in, in Jesus' teaching, which are according to experiencing eternal life. And it's all based on God's unparalleled authority, the very nature of who God is. Those are vital when living on mission. And our focus all hinges on this character of God and how we know him to be. Paul pushes language to a point of almost breaking, trying to describe God's character and his authority in this final appeal. Here's the fourth appeal to us. Respect God's authority. Respect the unparalleled authority of the person of God. Paul constructs this foundational reality by drawing on, Jake would love this, sort of an old song. It was on their playlist, sort of an old worship song, an old hymn. He draws on the lyrics of this God-centered doxology that Paul started, remember how he started way back ago, chapter one with these words? Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only God be glory and honor forever and ever. Listen to what he says in chapter six. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul Paul celebrates this majesty and this mystery of God by affirming four truths about God's unparalleled authority, his unparalleled character, his sovereign nature and power, a four-point epic doxology in which God is altogether beyond human manipulation. Just quickly looking at these, first, God is undisputable in power. He's invincible. He's the absolute sovereign. He transcends beyond all influence of earthly powers. He is God, blessed and the only ruler, king of kings and lord of lords. Second, God is untouched by death. He's immortal. He alone possesses immortality, one version reads. I like it. He's the very source of life, eternal life. Andrew Peterson in one of his songs talked about how he put death to death. (laughs) And he beat it at his own game. He has has no power to touch him, immortal. Third, God is unapproachable in light, impenetrable by sin's darkness, He dwells in pure glory and darkness of any shape or any form, whether falsehood or evil, cannot enter the very presence of God or overcome him. And lastly, God is unsealable by human eyes. He's invisible. No eye has seen him or can see. We only know him as much as he's pleased to make himself known, kind of like when he passed in front of Moses and covered his eyes. Paul's doxology here. To end this section, chapter 6, it really instills confidence. It really instills courage. It provides us with language that we can use to describe God. For us to hear out of our own mouth the scriptures of God as we offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices of worship to him, living on mission with all of our affections set on this unconquerable God. In my prep for this sermon as I was looking through that doxology, I was reminded of an old sermon in 1976 by a pastor named S.M. Lockridge. And there's a part of his message I just want to kind of share as we wrap this message up with you. The Bible says he's the king of righteousness, the king of the ages, the king of heaven, and the king of glory. That's my king. The heavens declare the glory. The firmament displays his handiwork. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. 
No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful, imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Now that's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique, unparalleled, unprecedented, supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature, the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in higher criticism, the fundamental doctrine in truth theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spirituality. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all the needs, all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives and defends the feeble and blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate, he regards the aged, and rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom, the doorway of deliverance, the pathway of peace, the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness, the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty, the captain of the conquerors, the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the governor of governor, prince of princes, king of kings, and lord of lords. That's my king. Oh, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens can't contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, and yet they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been. He always will be. He's had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. Yours, my king, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through all the forevers, you are the amen. Amen. That's our king that instills confidence within us to live on mission today. And with that, let's celebrate in prayer. Will you bow with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for making yourself known to us as our King of Kings. We so want to know you more and to reflect your likeness and your image on this planet in a way that brings you glory. We want to advance your reputation beyond anything else. We're asking, Lord, for your help that you would orient our nearsightedness to be eternally mindful. You would help us live pure with a holy ethic and a biblical groundedness grasping this eternal life based and rooted on this unconquerable character that is you. We desperately desire to see you. We can't wait for you to make yourself known. Would you come soon, Lord Jesus? Until then, until then, Would you empower us to live for you in a most glorifying way and to bring many people into relationship with you? We pray for your blessing on this church, for you to be magnified through this body. In your name, Jesus, we pray confidently. Amen. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.